morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Julie Zuckerman, whose debut novel in stories, The Book of Jeremiah, has just been published by Press 53 right here in Winston-Salem. Julie, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thanks, Charlie. Great to be here. You call your book a novel in stories. Tell us what that means and why you chose this particular form. Did you did you feel it was especially well-suited to the story that you have to tell? Yeah, when I first wrote the uh, the first story I wrote, uh, which ended up being the last story in the book, and I immediately um, fell in love with the character, and I knew I wanted to write uh, more stories about him and kind of unravel his life. And I had recently read Olive Kittredge, and that was kind of my model. Um, so I <clears throat> I knew I wanted it to be many different interlinking stories. Um, and then I guess for marketing purposes, novel and stories <laughs> sounds good. Uh, but, um, I think it is, you know, and when I st- sat back and once I had the full, um, manuscript thinking about how I was going to structure, uh, the stories, uh, thinking about a narrative arc for the novel, I, th- I think there is one. So. I mean, and to me, in some ways, it seems like writing a novel and stories is is taking the most difficult part of both forms. <laughs> uh, you know, a novel where you where you're sort of limited somewhat in the way you can tell the story, and a story where they have to be linked together. So I think it's I think it's quite a feat. Had you written a lot of short stories before this? Yeah, I'd written. Um, I'd, I guess I'd been writing for a few years before I wrote this first story in the, that appears in the Book of Jeremiah. Um, maybe ten to. 12 stories that were, um, I, I, there were probably a lot more short, much shorter stories when I really first started writing that yeah. didn't really go anywhere. Um, but uh, to me, it wasn't such a feat. It was much easier than doing a novel. A novel to me is really daunting. Um, you have to think of, you know, the outline and the, pl- there's so many, it's, it's, it's huge. And so for me, starting this way with a novel and stories was the perfect way to start. I think it's so interesting to hear you say that because I, I like have the opposite feeling to me. A short story is daunting. Like there's no time. You have to get it all done right in this very short period of time. So, so it's, it's fascinating to me how different writers are, are drawn to, to different forms and yet often for the same reasons, because they think this one's not going to be as, as scary, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Jeremiah, the hero of your book is named after one of the major prophets in the Hebrew Bible. What are the connections between your character and the prophet Jeremiah? So there's not that many direct connections. Uh, I've been telling people that I did uh, throw in many different clues, little um, nuances, and I, I I haven't actually given them the secrets away. I keep saying, if you can find the connections, then you know you win a prize. Um, there are a few phrases I threw in there um, in different stories. Um, I guess. Uh, I can I can share a few if you want. Um, there's one uh, where he Jeremiah the prophet is worried about being a laughing stock, and that's that's a kind of recurrent theme for um, my Jeremiah that he he's worried about being um, irrelevant as he gets older, and he's worried that his you know c- colleagues are 
talking about him behind his back, and he, he does a lot of awkward, uh, impulsive things sometimes, and maybe it's warranted that he's a, a bit of a laughingstock, but, but he worries about that. Um, there's another story uh, that takes place during the Vietnam War, um, and he, it's right at the end of the Vietnam War, and I base this on um, I guess this was right after the 1972 election. So Kissinger was out there making promises on behalf of uh, his candidate Nixon that the war was going to end soon um, and that peace is at hand. And there's one scene where Jeremiah is fed up with this because right after the election, there's another big um, bombing campaign at the end. And, and um, he says something like, peace, peace is at hand, but there's no peace. And I think that is um, a quote or something very similar <laughs> from the actual book of Jeremiah. I think it's nice to put, you know, to, to not draw too much attention to those things, but to sort of let them be there. I've done that with, with a lot of my books where, um, you know, there are those sort of allusions to things past that are fun to suss out for the people who notice them, but you're not going to really be missing anything if you don't catch every single one of those. You're not going to, you know, not understand the book or something like that. Exactly. exactly. Tell us I, I, I was going to say, I'd like to throw in various other cameos of yeah, <laughs> like yeah. people that are reading that know, you know, know certain names from my family members or, you know, just little fun things. So I threw those in also. So for anybody who's read the book already, like me, this is a pretty obvious question. But for many of our readers who will hopefully go and read the book, tell us about how your own cultural and religious background have shaped your writing and in particular this book. Right. So Jeremiah is the son of Jewish immigrants, and he's born in 1926, so obviously not someone from my generation um, or even my parents' generation. He's somewhere between my grandparents and my parents' generation. Uh, and But I had very much in mind, especially the, his early life um, and his own parents uh, who are immigrants, uh, I had my grandparents very much in mind when I was writing some of those earlier stories. Um the smells from his mother's kitchen, the way um, his grandfather had to keep his liquor store open till very late at night. Um, that, that's exactly my grandparents. Um, so um, in terms of the religious stuff, uh, it's a little different because as Jeremiah uh, grows older and as an adult, he's not very observant. He's very culturally Jewish, but he doesn't give his kids a very strong background um, in, in, in Jewish stuff. I mean, the, you know, they have a bar bat mitzvahs and um, probably go to synagogue on, on the high holidays, but they're not super active in the Jewish community. And, and that's where my history and his diverge significantly because I do come from a very active Jewish family. Uh, I'm married to a Jewish educator, um, you know, so both my family and my husband's family very involved in many aspects of the Jewish community. Uh, and so how do you think the experience of reading the book is going to differ between, um, and I come to it as a non-Jewish reader, but how, how do you think it will differ between a Jewish reader and a non-Jewish reader? And do you, do you feel a responsibility to sort of accurately represent that culture for those readers who may be less familiar with it? Yeah, I think, first of all, I think a lot of the Jewish readers will identify with uh, certainly some of the earlier stories and the the language and the voice of his parents and the Yiddishisms, you know. Um, I grew up 
hearing lots of Yiddish words, um, and even the, the intonations when people are speaking English, they still have some Yiddish intonations. Um, but I don't think, uh, I hope that non-Jewish readers will also identify with the, the kind of universal aspects of, of Jeremiah's character, um, his struggles, his, um, you know, his marriage, the way he's a father, the way he looks at his career and, and his worries about his own life. So I hope that, um, readers, both, (laughs) all kinds of readers will, will enjoy it. Um, the other thing is, you know, I, it's, I don't want to, I mean, there, there's many different ways, uh, that, to be a Jew in, in the world today, mm-hmm. and um, plenty of people have very similar experiences to Jeremiah and his kids. Don't grow up with too much religious stuff, but they do um, do feel culturally Jewish. So I didn't want to make any statements about what's you know the right way to be Jewish or not. Sure. I don't believe sure. that either. I love the way that, um, especially in the, some of those early stories, as you say, you work in the the Yiddish words in a in a way that. If we are less familiar with that language, we can sort of figure out from context what, you know, so you don't, I don't, I never felt lost um, as, as a reader who's a little bit less familiar with Jewish culture. I felt like you did a really good job of, of helping us understand without sort of condescending or anything like that. Thanks. So you're from Connecticut, but you live in Israel. What, what took you to Israel and why did you want this book to be published in the United States? So uh, I've been in Israel for about 25 years. As I said, I grew up in a pretty active uh, Jewish household, and I went to Jewish summer camp and youth group. And um, I came to Israel as a teenager on a summer tour. And the thing that all of my peers do and did was come to Israel for a semester abroad or a, a junior year abroad in college. And I did that, and I just loved living here. I, I, I felt really at home from day one. And the longer I was, I came for a semester, the longer I was here, I was kind of jealous of my friends who had been here for the full year. And I said, okay, as soon as I graduate college, I'm coming back. And I did, although I did go back to the States for a brief stint in graduate school. Um, and as soon as I finished graduate school, I came back here because I just feel so at home here and, and very comfortable living here. Uh, but in terms of writing the book, uh, I'm, I'm still very connected to my family in America and all my friends in America. We go back every summer. I go back for work for my day job um, sometimes. Uh, it was almost easier, for, uh, more familiar to me um, to write about somebody living in America. Also, I love American history, and um, and my mother was an American history teacher, so it was fun for me to do the research of the different, you know, points uh, in Jeremiah's life, whether it was um, World War II or Vietnam or the Civil Rights Movement, so mm-hmm. that was fun for me too. Like I do in some of my novels, you in this novel do novel in stories do not tell the story in strictly chronological order. You you skip around in his his life. We have the first story is is when he's a child. The second story, he's an old man, and there's a lot of in between. Why did you choose to present the stories in the order that you did? I so I played around with the order a lot. The, mm-hmm. My original idea, because I wrote because the first story I wrote what takes place when he's eighty two. My original idea was that I was going to do it in reverse chronological order, but then I realized that doesn't work because. Chronologically, the first story is when Jeremiah is about 
six, I think, and it's really his brother's story. He's more of a Jeremiah, more of a secondary character. And I didn't want to end on that. I wanted, you know, I knew I wanted to um, start with Jeremiah and end with Jeremiah. So the the way that um, helped me think about structuring the book was uh, one of my writing instructors said, "Think about it in thirds." Um, you know, and and then I had to figure out well. Some stories from when he's younger, some when he's older. There's stories told from other family members' points of view. There's about five of those and eight told from Jeremiah's point of view. So I had to find balances, and then I tried to find common threads that would link one story to the next. There's a great essay called Stacking Stones by David Jouse um, in in his uh, craft book. And he talks about all the different ways you can structure a story collection. And so it was important to me to find a common thread. So there's be one story where Jeremiah's wife is um, pregnant with um, their second child. And then, and you, you know, look right at the end of that story. Um, Oh no! Sorry. The story before the story before Jeremiah's wife is pregnant with their second child is the story told from their son's point of view when he's, um, I think, a freshman in college, something like that. Um, there's. Uh, let me see if I can find another connection. Oh, okay, so then then there's that story from um, when when his wife is pregnant with their second child and Jeremiah has just moved his family to the Berkshires. He's changed jobs from being a, um, uh, like a Washington policy, uh, what's it called? The uh, policy hunk, but not hunk. Um, I'm blanking on the word, but he'd been working in for the administration in Washington and he decides he's going to pursue an academic career and he's moved his family to the Berkshires and, uh, to work at this fictional university. And, and the story takes place at the opening cocktail, um, for the political science factory where he's meeting all his new colleagues. And he's kind of worried, though, by the end of the story that, mm, did he make the right choice? Will he fit in here? And then immediately after that is a story that shows that he ha- did succeed, takes place 40 years later. He's now um, an emeritus professor at the same university. So I tried to find a, a thread from the beginning to the end in, in uh, the structure. Yeah, I think I love doing that with chapters in a novel, too, in my novels, especially when I'm moving back and forth in time to try to have these little connections, I tend to make them less subtle at the beginning of the novel so that the reader will kind of catch on and then they get more subtle as, as, as you get into the novel because it becomes sort of sublimated. The reader doesn't have to even realize quite, you know, that those connections are there. They just sort of sense it. Let's talk about the opening story for just a minute. Um, the title strong head and an outstretched arm, like most great titles can be interpreted in more than one way. Can you talk about how the meaning of that title unfolds throughout the story? Yeah. So that's a phrase that's taken um, directly from the Passover Haggadah. That's the, the uh, book we read at um, at the Seder night, at, which talks about how God has taken uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, with a, a strong hand and an outstretched arm. So we say that every year. Um, we all repeat that line at the Seder. Um, and, but in this story, uh, it's told from his, from Jeremiah's mother's point of view. And she's very worried because Jeremiah is kind of a rambunctious kid who likes to do a lot of pranks. And she's getting word from his teachers that, that he needs more discipline at home. And, and her husband is kind of encouraging of Jeremiah's, uh, 
you know, being a prankster. He, he's, he's more of a lighthearted guy and she's very nervous all the time, um, that her kid is turning into a troublemaker. So she worries that she has to be the strong hand, um, and she she disciplines him throughout the story and doesn't always work. But towards the end of the story, she, she which takes place at a Passover Seder, she she's kind of realizing that maybe you know she, maybe she should go a little easier on him, and she doesn't want to drive him away um, by being by being too harsh and and playing the discipline uh, too much. So that's the outstretched arm. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of feel like that that story that Ricky moves from having the strong head to the outstretched arm. You know, um, exactly. The, so you tell, as you said, you tell this first story from from his mother's point of view, and to me, in many ways, it was this was really Ricky's story even more than Jeremiah's. She's the one who I feel like has the character arc, and the one who is who is struggling to overcome challenges, and some of those challenges uh, are related to her immigrant experience, which seems to me to be uh, especially relevant now. Is, is that is is that an experience that you wanted particularly to write about in 2019? Yeah, though I probably wrote this first version of this um, story long before. I, I, I think I wrote it in um, 2011. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, so but it's still relevant. Yeah, <laughs> it's certainly still, still relevant today. Um, and you know, growing up as the granddaughter of immigrants, um, it was certainly, you know, very relevant, um, in my childhood to know that my, you know, my dad is a first generation American. Um, and there was always great gratitude in my family, um, for, for America. Um, I, my, um, my grandfather, my other side, was always like a very you know strong believer in public education. My my neither set of grandparents had had very much money, but through hard work and and the public schools, um, they you know were able to succeed and and uh, make a, a better life for themselves in America. And um, and that's carried through uh, you know to my mom, who was a public school teacher, and to to all of us. Um, this, this belief and this gratitude towards America, which Ricky does have. And, and, uh, she, she mentions this, uh, I think in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in America, we all sort of have this notion that the immigrant experience is all about people coming to America and figuring out what life in America is about, but you've had a different immigrant experience in that you started in America and then moved to a different country. What's your immigrant experience been like? And has that come to play in the stories about an immigrant family? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I had a, a pretty smooth uh, transition <laughs> to, to life here, I would say. Um, I knew a lot of people. Now, my Hebrew is still not fluent, even after 25 years. Um, and I still tend, you know, my closest friends here are probably English speakers, um, as most immigrant groups tend to do. Um but I don't know if I had to struggle as much as my grandparents did. It's it's more it's more the language, and now you know I'm raising four Israeli kids and reading the tons of emails I get about you know their school stuff and like all the fine print in Hebrew. I just kind of skim over that. <laughs> hope hope it's all okay. <laughs> um, but uh, but I but I have had the experience which my grandparents probably did have of my kids saying to me like, don't, 
don't talk in English or, or don't try to talk Hebrew to me or don't they, they get embarrassed by, you know, when, when they were little, they right. got embarrassed by our accents or things like that. Or my daughter once said to me, um, she, she said, mommy, it's not Cinderella. It's sin de re la, like with the, the, the trying to sound it out for me, how it would be pronounced by an Israeli. So, so, um, in that case, I'm sure my grandparents had similar experiences with their kids telling them, you know, <laughs> not to say certain things or speak in a certain way. Yeah. Of course, even those of us who are not immigrants have those same experiences with our kids. So it's <laughs> right, right. maybe a universality, universality there. Um, you quote what for me is a particularly powerful line from the Haggadah in this first story. Uh, and, I, and it's that in every generation, each person must act as if he or she was personally redeemed out of slavery. How does that concept shape Jeremiah as he moves through life? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, again, at the Passover Seder, we talk about it all the time because you're supposed to envision yourself as being um, led out of out of Egypt and out of slavery. I'm not sure it. Um, I'm not sure Jeremiah thinks about it too much over the course of his life. Um, he does have reverberations in his head all the time of things that his parents would say to him about being a mensch, which is um, um, trying to think of how to translate that into English. <laughs> uh, oh, I think our listeners know what a mensch okay, is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm hoping. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so he, he, he is always trying to be a better person or his father's, you know, voice in his head is trying to tell him to to do the right thing, um, even when it's um, when it's hard for him, and I would say that the you know the slavery of Jeremiah is he is very he is quite a workaholic, um, so it's a struggle for him to relax and think do other things and not just be a slave t- to his work. Um, although he also enjoys the work um, and. Um, let me think if there's other ways that that he, that he would struggle with that well, throughout. I'm also curious how how do you feel that concept, um, you know, sort of shapes modern contemporary Judaism? This idea that we were that, that everyone was was personally redeemed out of slavery. Right. Well, part of the idea is that you should always, you know, um, remember. Um, uh, those who are, are less fortunate and strive to um, help make the world a better place for them, mm-hmm. um, take in, you know, take in the stranger. Um, uh, the, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which got a lot of uh, press, um, I think, after the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting six yeah. months ago, um, because the uh, the gunman was was uh, you know ranting and raving about them. There, that's their whole um, um, you know mission statement is to take in uh, the stranger. Um, so that is very strong um, value. Uh, yeah, here their their slogan: "Welcome the stranger, protect the refugee." Um, and most of the work they do today has nothing to do with the Jews, as, as far as I know. It's 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 helping other refugees. Um, but that that concept of um, you know build, you know making the world a better place by by opening um, 
you know, opening yourself and your resources to helping those less fortunate is, is, is very um, strong still in, in the Jewish circles that I'm in today. Yeah. I, I want to move on to the second story now, which begins with a scene. This is your first book, and yet you have this scene at the beginning of the second story where uh, Jeremiah is 80 years old, and he is examining this hot-off-the-press book that celebrates his career. And I think you perfectly capture, and maybe you realize now if you've gotten copies of your book in the mail, that moment, what it's like for an author to open that package and see your very first book, you know, and, and yes. what it's, how cool it is. So what was it like for you to see, and how did, how did your experience compare with the fictional experience that you'd given Jeremiah in this, in this uh, story? Um, oh, that's great. Well, Jeremiah didn't have to like think about social media. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but yeah, it was very exciting for me when I got the first package of, of, uh, books, especially the, I mean, I got the advanced review copies that don't have the actual cover, um, uh, earlier, but, but when I, and then that was exciting too, by the way, um, when I opened the first box of books, um, with the real cover, it was, um, wow, it was very exciting. I didn't cry, but I almost cried. (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, it's that moment that as writers, you know, we know that not it's a very competitive business and not everybody reaches that moment of being able to open that box. And so there is a sense of, uh, both good fortune and accomplishment. I think that goes, goes with that moment. And I think you capture that in, in this story. Uh, in the first story, uh, Ricky's, Ricky's reactions to events are sort of out of sync with the reactions of those around her. You talked about how her husband thinks it's not really a big deal that Jeremiah is sort of a cut up. Um, but in the second story, it's Jeremiah whose whose mood and reactions are kind of out of sync and in, in similar kind of situation. Can you talk about the connections between the mother and the son? Yeah, let me think for a second. Um, he Jeremiah definitely takes after his mother a lot in terms of um, in terms of this. I don't know about moodiness, but um, but he does uh, worry, and there's there's some later stories too where this comes out even stronger. That um, one of the one of Ricky's character flaws, Ricky is the mother. One of her character flaws, I would say, is that she she really thinks very highly of her firstborn son. Lenny, who can, you know, do no wrong. Um, and later we find out that there, you know, he's not quite perfect either. Um, and Jeremiah, for his part, also um, tends to favor one of his kids. He has two kids, and it's very clear, you know, which one is he feels much more connected to versus his wife. You know, who, well, his wife has a good relationship with both kids. Um, so he struggles with that um, sim- the, the same way his mother does. Um, let me think. There's other ways that they're similar. Yeah. Um, I just felt like you did a nice job of kind of making him the son of, of his mother mm-hmm. uh, in a way that, that we sort of recognize these little moments like that. And I, I saw it in particularly in that moment in this story when he, you know, everybody around him is sort of celebrating this accomplishment and he's just like, Oh, there's not very many people here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to come, you know? And, and I felt like this, the, the same kind of out of syncness that, that she has when everybody's going, Oh, this, this kid is so funny. And she's going, Oh, he's going to get himself in trouble. He's, he's, it's going to be a problem, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, uh, Jeremiah in this second story reflects on his lack of close personal friends. And he has, he articulates this thought, um, which I think, 
has great relevance, and I'm quoting here. He says, when was the last time he had had a conversation of personal significance? And my question is, do you think in this age of constant media noise and social media, as you mentioned, is it become easier and easier to live shallowly? And if so, how do we live deeply? Uh, I'm sure I think it is much easier to live shallowly, although I think it's a it's a personality thing. I certainly know plenty of people who have have um, deep conversations and and connect with other people and and have friends. Although, um, um, yeah, how how can we be better at that? I guess is getting off our devices. Number one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean one of the things that I feel very strongly about. Um, I'm an observant Jew, so um, from Friday evening on sundown till Saturday night, I am not on any devices, and my you know, neither is my family. So we have 25 hours a week that you know we're not on our phones, we're not on our computer, we're not slaves to our work or, or social media or anything like that, and that's what we have, you know good conversations, and we have time to read, and we play games, and that. Uh, that to me is, is so important. I, I would never want to give that up. I think that's that is so key. It's something we all do. We we had uh, I don't know a month or so ago they had this thing called I think it was called Earth Hour, and we were supposed to all turn off our everything electric mm. for an hour. Mm-hmm. And you know we sat there. My wife and I sat there with the in by the candlelight and had a lovely conversation that we probably wouldn't have had if the TV was running and the iPads were out and everything else. And it, it, it took so little effort. Uh, to, to reach that point, it seems like we should we should all be doing that more often. Yeah, you do a lovely job in this uh, second story of articulating the doubts of old age. Jeremiah is sitting there thinking, "Did I dedicate my life to the right things? Did I waste all those years? Should I have been someone else?" What is it about him and the way he thinks that even in these moments of great success, he can ask these these doubting questions? <sighs> Yeah, it, it goes to his deep, um, I don't know, neuroses or his um, lack of self-esteem, which he doesn't. He tries to hide that a lot, but but um, he he's plagued by this throughout several stories. I would say that you know he's not he's not sure uh, what people think of him. If people really like him, he finds in in these dedications to him at the beginning of of this book that's written in his honor, he still doesn't see the praise and and partially he's right because the dedications aren't necessarily so nice you know they they're trying to be nice but but they they could have been nicer you know yeah. um, so he's not he's not wrong sometimes in the in his in this sense he gets that that people maybe respect him but don't like him so much um so I think I've lost the train of your question. Well, no, I, I think I think you yeah. <laughs> I think you answered it well, though. That um, you know, it just goes to his neuroses. And so at the end of the story, in spite of Jeremiah's sort of crotchety mood through part of it, there's I think a marvelous hopefulness. And there's a line that I especially loved, which is, "The Book of Jeremiah is still a work in progress." Do you see that idea in some ways as the lesson of this story, or even of this book, that it's never too late to turn over a new leaf? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even in the last story, when Jeremiah is 82, he starts something new, and he takes pleasure in it. Um, his wife, uh, at the age of 60, takes up the electric guitar. Um, so there's a, there's a, several examples in the book of people 
you know, it's, it's never too late to try something. I only started writing fiction when I was 38. Um, and I had never really done it before. And I found that I loved it. So I mean, not quite, not, I'm not, you know, 60, like his, his wife and that story or 82, but, but I really believe that you can, you can keep trying new things, you know. Yeah, I, do, I do love that the thing that his wife takes up is the electric guitar. That's just, there's just a, a great moment in that story where, um, where the son comes home with the, with the crazy looking daughter and, and I mean the, the crazy looking girlfriend and she just, all she wants to do is just like go to the garage and jam. It's like, that's, just, yeah. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> um, this book is the story of one man's life, Jeremiah, but it's also the story of the history of much of the past century. And you've touched on this a little bit, but can you talk to us a, a little more about how you make the historical personal? Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it started because the, I think the third story I wrote is the one that takes place in 1945 when Jeremiah is serving in the U.S. Army in the Signal Corps, and he's there's a story that takes place in Paris, which you know so the war is already over in Europe, but it's still going on in the Pacific, um, and it was easy for me to place him in the Signal Corps because that's what my grandfather was in, um, and I started doing all this research about well, what did you know, soldiers in the Signal Corps actually do, and, you know, what equipment did they use, and the other character in that story is a combat nurse, and I was researching what, you know, what were combat nurses doing in the Battle of the Bulge, all sorts of things like that, and I loved going down the research rabbit hole, and then from there I said, okay, I want to, you know, any story that takes place, say, pre-1980 or so, I was going to go and do some research or place it in, in some a moment in American history. So that's how I got to the other stories of, um, you know, in v- Vietnam and civil rights um, and even like the beginnings of the CIA are, are mentioned yeah, in here. Yeah. So I, I loved the research part so much. So tell, tell us a little bit about how you did that research. Um, <laughs> through the internet for the most part, I, yeah. I found, you know, um, academic journals and uh, New York Times uh, archives and transcripts of press releases. Uh, there's, so there's one um, the story that takes place uh, during Vietnam. I found a press release uh, from, or sorry, a, a press conference uh, from the, the this bombing campaign that happened uh, at the tail end of 1972. They, they called it the Christmas time bombings, yeah. and um, I found this transcript. And so some of the questions that the reporters in the story are asking are actual questions that were asked at, you know, at a press conference um, back then. Um, I found, um, you know, eulogies of of different historical uh, figures. Um, So I I put a lot of my sources on my website (laughs) in the research section, but there's a lot more too. Um, I love that you're you're working from what I would think of as primary sources rather than going to see somebody's you're reading somebody's book that's a summary of what happened in Vietnam that you're looking at you know actual documents from the from the period that's the kind of research I love I love to do as well I I spent a lot of time looking at old newspapers looking at old photographs uh, you know the things that are actually relics from the from the era yeah, for sure. Even when I couldn't get a good um, image in my mind of what did uh, people look like in Depression era Bridgeport, you know, mm-hmm. I would like put it into Google. I'd find a few pictures, and then I could kind of then I got a better idea. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, these guys are sitting here and not like a a soup line or you know or waiting waiting for 
for food and, you know, I can see their jackets are kind of torn and, you know, they looked like uh, hobos, but it just helped me describe what Jeremiah and his brother were seeing when, when they when they pass a, a church like that. Yeah. For Jeremiah, and I think this is true for most of us too, some of the major turns that happen in our lives are due to things over which we have no control. But he does also make decisions and take control of his life at times too. How do you think he would describe the balance in his life between, for want of a better word, fate and action? Mm. Um, yeah, he, he tends to regret some of his actions because um, he, he does act very impulsively in some stories. Um, sometimes he comes to regret that impulsiveness and sometimes um, he's kind of proud of it. Um, like in that second story uh, that you were talking about at the end, he when he's wondering if he's done enough in his life, and he realizes, you know, that it's not, you know, it's not too late to change, and he could still do more. And he comes up with an an idea that he, you know, he'd like to do and would make his father proud. Um, but yeah, sometimes he does definitely feel um, wronged by fate, yeah. um, and he has to. Try to figure out how to how to deal with those emotions. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I want to talk for a minute about a, a, a more minor character, but one that I just found really interesting, and that is Jeremiah's cousin Jackie, who mm. I think you. This is a person who can be viewed as both a hero and as a criminal, and I think it all depends on your point of view. Do you think that that dichotomy gets at something broader that's working in this text that that everything depends on your point of view? Yeah, I liked how um, how Jeremiah is very annoyed by something that his cousin has done, but the rest of the family is viewing Jackie as as a hero. But right. by the end of the story, Jeremiah kind of comes around to their point of view. Um, yeah, there's a lot of you know Jeremiah is not always a likable character. I mean, he's not a, he doesn't do anything criminal, but um, but you know people are complex, so so there's. Um, there, there's a lot not to like about him, but I hope that um, on balance, people will will uh, find the things that there are to like about him. So. Well, I mean, I, I think to me, Jeremiah's real. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if if he was if he was completely likable all the time, that's that's not very real. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I think for characters, it's there. I think I think there's there some place maybe where you use the word cantankerous. There's there's a cantankerousness is actually kind of fun to read about because because we all experience that in our lives and people that we know and ourselves. You know, so so we want to see reality, not just you know some rosy colored vision of a perfect person. You know. Yeah, I see. Um, I I did use the word cantankerous probably a few times. <laughs> um, two times. Okay, just did a little search. <laughs> <laughs> do Do you think that his that that part of him, uh, the way that he sometimes reacts with moodiness and that he's not always you know um, pleasant about everything, did that make it harder or easier for you to kind of crawl into his skin and, and be Jeremiah? Um, it wasn't hard for me because I, you know, know people in my own life who are cantankerous, but, but deep down, I know they're good people and, and not always, not only deep down, you know, much of the time they're very good people and, and, and they want to help others and, um, and they love their families. But, um, you know, some people, 
have kind of crusty exteriors. Um, it can be grumpy. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't so hard for me to get into that. I'm sure I can be grumpy sometimes too. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it wasn't so hard for me to get into that mindset. Well, I don't, I don't want to leave our listeners thinking that he's nothing but that because he's certainly um, a, a very relatable character, as are so many of the characters um, in these stories. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll get us all thinking about writing and about you and the way that you approach your work. So if you're ready, we will begin I'm the ready. speed round. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? Illuminate or illuminating some variation. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Uh, can I say two? I'll say, sure. um, <laughs> it is one of them. Um, and this is another word that I don't really like is bestial. That's kind of you. Where's your favorite place to write? I love to write in cafes. I go in, I have my coffee, I put on my uh, playlist, um, and I can. I love writing there. I just have to ignore it. If I see anybody I know, I have to ignore them. <laughs> Where could you never write? Um, I suppose on a bus or in a car, I'd get too carsick. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I don't mind starting sentences with the word and. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? Um, the first book I remember really loving as a kid was um, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. I just love that imaginative world they created. Um, what are you reading now? I am reading Lovely Little Things by Maurice Joyce uh, by Maureen Joyce Connolly. She's in my debut 19 authors group on Facebook, so mm -hmm. I just got her book. What book would you like to have written? Uh, anything by Margaret Atwood, because she's mm. so creative. Um, specifically, maybe The Year of the Flood or Oryx and Crake. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Um, I, I would love to write one of these like massive family epics, um, like um, A Suitable Boy, uh, like a, a, a real tome, but I don't know if yeah. I'll ever get, get around to doing that. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That, that, that they found the characters in the book of Jeremiah relatable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they like them and they could, you know, see themselves in the characters. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas, and operates a new community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Julie Zuckerman, whose new novel and stories, The Book of Jeremiah, is available wherever books are sold. Julie will be appearing at Malaprop's Bookstore in Durham, North Carolina on July 23rd, along with Press 53 publisher Kevin Watson. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. Tune in to upcoming episodes to hear authors from the 15th Annual Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors, September 7th, here in Winston-Salem. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.